Welcome, everyone. It's our pleasure today to welcome back Dr. Peter McCullough. Uh, Dr. McCullough is an internist, cardiologist, epidemiologist, chief scientific officer for the Wellness Company. She is. He is recently quoted as having said, uh, where there's a slew of corruption, you will find the biopharmaceutical complex setting up shops. We're going to talk a little bit today about the biopharmaceutical complex, which is a Something I um, would have doubted existed. I really would have pushed back on it had the last two years not happened. He has a book, The Courage to Face COVID-19, Preventing Hospitalization and Death While Battling the Biopharmaceutical Complex. You can follow Peter McCullough at petermcculloughmd.com. McCullough is M-C-C-U-L-L-O-U-G-H. And, uh, you know, he's always very interesting, and I learn a little something, something by talking to him. Of course, our friend Dr. Kelly Victory is here to interview him and share some ideas as well. So let's get right to it. Our laws as it pertains to substances are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic. Because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin, ridiculous I'm a, I'm a doctor for sake. Where the hell you think I learned that? I'm just saying, you go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it, I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. I recently discovered Paleo Valley. They have a line of products that align perfectly with a paleo dietary regimen. Goodbye to the limited rotation of eggs, burgers, and the standard fare. Hello to a wide variety of extraordinary products that are both healthful and delicious. Paleo Valley offers a spectacular range of options, including 100% grass-fed beef sticks. They're packed with nutrients like omega-3 fatty acids, vitamins, minerals, glutathione, CLA, and bioavailable protein. Plus, keto-friendly, Make for a great protein-rich snack on the go. Paleo Valley's tasty beef sticks are not just 100% grass-fed, but also grass-finished, sourced from small domestic farms in the U.S. and flavored with real organic spices. They're also fermented, which means they contain natural probiotics that are great for gut health, and they taste amazing. Try them out by heading over to paleovalley.com slash drdrew to get 15% off your first order today. Don't miss out on this opportunity to discover a brand that is perfect for your paleo lifestyle. We appreciate all your patience with uh, us being a few minutes late. We had to give Dr. McCullough a chance to set up in his new studio. And uh, yesterday we had some other issues, but we appreciate your uh, your uh, leniency with us and uh, flexibility. So we appreciate it very much. Um, and I'm reading a quote on our restream here from Liberty Ninja. Susan is the smart one with all this craziness. Dr. Drew is coming along slowly. <laughs> so Susan, I thought I would let you ring in here first as we uh, launch into this conversation with Dr. McCullough. Okay. What do you want me to say? Um, just how excited you were to talk to him again, hear from him again. Oh, I'm really excited to talk to yeah. him again. Yeah. And uh, he was one of the original people that we spoke to at the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah. And probably one of the first people that got us a strike on YouTube. And fortunately, we're still around. <laughs> we made it. Okay. Um, but I'm I'm really happy to have him back. And you're also helping about this new uh, this new Paleo Valley. Yes, and I, I we have a new sponsor, and we're so excited. Um, PaleoValley.com. You can also go to drdrew.com/paleovalley uh, because if you do PaleoValley.com/drew, you're going to get another organization. The wrong one. But um, we get Drew loves the beef sticks. He's oh able God. to eat them. He travels with them. He 
Shum, yeah. And um, also, we like the bone broth, and you'll hear more about that later. Fair enough. Let's bring in uh, cardiologist, internist, epidemiologist, chief scientific officer for the wellness company, Dr. Peter McCullough. John McCullough, thank you as always for joining us. I, I, I feel like I first need kind of an, an update from you, like what's been happening lately? What are your thoughts? Where have you been? How have things evolved from your perspective? I'll tell you, I, I have to apologize for the YouTube strike. Uh, no one should take a YouTube strike when we have a novel virus and we're trying to discuss treatment approaches. That's what people wanted to hear. If I know. sick, how could they be treated? It, you know, things were so dramatic over the course of the first year. I uh, basically teamed up with John Leake, who's already a true crime bestselling author, and we wrote the book, Courage to Face COVID-19. And it's all about what happened very early on in terms of our uh, abilities to try to find ways of helping people avoid hospitalization and death. That's what we were doing. And the, the, the really the big reveal in the book is instead of you know being congratulated or, or actually getting assistance, getting some wins in our sale, instead we were crushed. We were crushed with social yeah. media censorship. Uh, you know there was a tremendous wave of antipathy that, that came forward to anybody who was trying to bring help to America and the world. I mean, just thinking back to the fact that there wasn't routine application of corticosteroids or we weren't discussing optimum dosing and which corticosteroid. These clearly had benefit. I took them when I had an alpha outbreak. And even that wasn't allowed to be discussed because God forbid you might wander into one of the forbidden words. <laughs> so weird. You know, it's interesting. In May of 2020, the very first Senate hearing uh, with Ron Johnson, who was leading these, had Pierre Corian. And Pierre Corey uh, was brought on to discuss steroids. Do you know at that time, every single agency, the NIH, CDC, FDA, Infectious Disease Society of America, uh, the EMA, they all said, do not use corticosteroids to treat COVID-19. That's in May of 2020. Yeah. Corey went on, he said he reviewed wow. the data and he said, you know, uh, I'm treating patients, we should use steroids. Now, within a few months, the entire world followed Corey. But look how wrong the yeah. agencies were. In writing, they were completely wrong. And, and the, the issue is, it was early on. We don't want to you know, throw any stones. But the societies could have been neutral on things and said, you know, we're neutral right now. We're not sure if the doctor's judgment. There's no, uh, there's no problem or risk with neutrality. What we didn't like to see is these authoritative statements on essentially what I call therapeutic nihilism, not to do things when people are dying. Yeah. Crazy. Now we're in a situation where we have a second bivalent booster. And so, you know, I, I have a mixed sort of opinion about vaccines. My elderly patients, I've been vaccinating and boosting them, and I had most of them take the um, bivalent, bivalent vaccine. But now we have a second bivalent, a second booster. While, by the way, here in Southern California, a new variant has been circulating around, a new variant that is not covered by this bivalent booster, uh, and we have no data on this booster, none whatsoever. And I've been saying I, I'm going to kind of hold here even for the elderly patients. Today was the first day that on several occasions patients asked me about it. I guess somebody sent out some sort of a, an announcement. It was L.A. County Mental, you know, health, public health, or maybe may have been Pfizer, or you know, who knows who sent it out. But they all got a notification because they all came in telling me, "Should I get this second booster?" And I said, "Look, I, I, I don't have enough. You can take it if you want, but I can't recommend it because I don't have any data. 
I know. Yeah, I can't yet. And this has been this has been the problem all the way through the pandemic. The, the practitioner cannot make a risk reward analysis, and yet recommendations and mandates were coming down on their patients constantly. It's true, and there's no excuse not to do large randomized trials. Remember, all the vaccines from the very beginning was understood. They only last six months. They actually fade after a few months. So everybody's essentially unvaccinated in a few months anyway. Why couldn't we have had large-scale randomized trials? People could have participated in them. Uh, each company, yeah. Pfizer, Moderna, they had $100 billion of revenue. There was you know, plenty of money to go around to fund large clinical trials. We should not have been guessing. What happened was uh, in the spring of 2022, uh, there was an attempt of actually having a vaccine against the BA1 subvariant Omicron, and quickly the virus mutated. The companies gave up on that. Uh, then we got around to the uh, the summer and fall of 2022, actually August 16th is when they came out, was the BA4, BA5 uh, subvariant vaccines. Now, these were boosters. They still had 50% of the original formula against the wild type strain, and then the BA4, Omicron, BA4, BA5, Omicron strain. Um, Moderna was actually reduced in dose from 100 to 50. Pfizer stayed the same at the same uh, cumulative dose, composite dose of 30 micrograms. Remember, Janssen never changed and Novavax never changed. But the boosters, the novel boosters, only applied to messenger RNA. And there, they were approved with no human data. They were simply animal data, yeah. and they relied, they relied on antibodies. This is very important. And remember, the diagnostic yeah. division of the FDA says, do not rely on antibodies because they're not a reliable surrogate of immunity. That's the FDA diagnostic division. The FDA vaccine, and, uh, vaccine uh, group actually relied now eight times on EUA authorizations on what's called immunobridging studies. They're relying on antibody. In this case, they, re they relied on uh, mice model antibody elevations. The mice actually got sick with Omicron anyway, so it didn't stop the clinical infection. And that's how the new boosters came out. Yeah, this has been a this lack of data. A friend of mine is uh, who I'm going to get on the show. We've had him on before, Dr. Yogendra, who um, is working on long COVID. Five billion dollars was allocated for long COVID, and no one knows where that money went. He's going to be doing some double, you know, some really serious science on all this, but nobody else is, and yet billions of dollars were allocated for it. What? What has happened to us? What? What? I th that the the weird lack of doing science, and then the weird adulteration of what's get gets published. These are my two great concerns right now. Are, am I am I am I biased in some way? Is there something I'm feel I'm seeing that I'm not seeing, or, or what's going on here? You know, an interesting uh, paper. It's on my Substack. Uh, it has to do with retracted papers. We've had papers that are fully published. Uh, copyrighted, contracted, indexed in the National Library of Medicine. They've fully gone through peer review, editor review, finally editorial decision. They're actually out in the public domain for weeks or months, and then the journals retract them for administrative reasons. And it turns out these mm. papers are far more cited than papers that don't get retracted. And, and this is what we call uh, censorship. It's at the level what, what we believe is a biopharmaceutical complex a powerful syndicate that's formed that will basically comb through the literature, anything that's threatening to an official narrative, uh, the editors and the, and the publishers actually get pressure to retract them. So even the medical community now is seeing things through a biased lens. And would it be accurate to say that even some of the things that uh, have been legitimately retracted because they were uh, 
you know, they were either bad studies or completely fallacious. Um, sometimes those still get quoted. Well, it's it's uh, possible, but what we're finding out is the ones that are actually valid studies that are that withdrawn for administrative reasons. Those are the ones that are heavily cited. So they're actually bringing truth, and people are citing them anyway because they're important papers. Almost everything now is published in a preprint server anyway, so we always have the ability to go back and and, and cite them. We're just trying to advance the the science here. There's about ten thousand retractions uh, a year, about seven million publications. So it does happen. Uh, there can be overt fraud. It, it's very rare. I was the editor of two major journals for you know decades, and I can tell you it comes up very rarely. Uh, but what we're seeing is we're seeing breach of publication contract and retraction of valid papers because we believe of this external influence on publishers and editors. Are you, are you thinking of any papers in particular? Yeah, the the, the uh, paper in particular that you know I was involved in was fully published. I was uh, uh, the senior author in the current problems of cardiology. This was an invited paper. It went through peer review. It dealt with uh, myocarditis, uh, and it was basically mm -hmm. breaking the data down on epidemiology of myocarditis that we saw emerging after the messenger RNA products. And uh, it, you know, it was fully published six days before the pediatric. FDA vaccine meetings, we get a notice from Elsevier, the publisher, that it's being retracted. And, and we specifically yeah. ask, well, is there, is, there, is there invalidity here? Is there some type of sign? No, scientifically, yeah. it's fine. They're retracting it for administrative reasons. And they asked us to voluntarily agree to, to it being retracted. We, I, I disagreed. I'd already paid thousands of dollars of publication fees. You know, manuscripts take so much effort and, uh, to get across the finish line. And so they ended up uh, posting this and saying, listen, this was reviewed at the editor's or the author's um, request, meaning obviously they decided to do it. So, you know, I've had to threaten lawsuit and it's just, uh, it's a travesty to see valid papers withdrawn uh, when we know their important contributions and particularly suspicious timing right before a pediatric vaccine meeting and it deals with myocarditis. Interesting. Well, uh, I know Kelly is very interested to uh, get in this conversation, so I want to bring her in here as early as possible. I also want to tell people, I believe we have Ed Dowd coming in on Monday. Is that correct, Susan? Uh, at 3 yes, o'clock, he has some important important data he wants to update, and so we'll give him a chance to do that. Nicole Sapphire is coming in here. we got a lot of good guests coming in, but of course, today it is none other than Dr. Peter McCullough, which we will bring back in just after this and bring in Dr. Kelly as well. With Mother's Day quickly approaching, what better way to express your love than by giving the gift of younger-looking, beautiful skin with the luxurious feel of Genucel Skin Care? Susan, who is a huge fan of the brand, has raved about their Ultra Retinol product, which contains powerful retinol alternative, Bakukiol, and a proprietary MDL technology to soothe irritation and target red blotchy skin. Additionally, their under eye treatment is perfect for hiding those pesky bags and puffiness that can result from long flights or lack of sleep. I know I'm a snob about the products I use on my face. Everybody knows it. Every time I go to the dermatologist's office, they're just rows and rows of different creams. Retinols, vitamin C cream, under eye cream, night creams. Scrubs. And then when I get to the counter, they're overpriced. All kinds of products that you can all find at Genucel.com. In fact, you might have witnessed the astonishing effects of Genucel Redness Repair Intensive during a recent unplanned moment of our show. 
repairing my skin within minutes right before your eyes. That's just how fast this stuff works. Celebrate the special mom in your life today by visiting genucel.com slash Drew and check out the personalized packages from Susan and from myself bundled with our favorite Genucel products. And remember to use the promo code Drew for an extra 10% off. All orders are upgraded to free shipping. Plus, if you order now, every package purchased gets a free spring spa package with three of Genucel's best-selling spa products ready to try in the comfort of your own home. Woo! Again, that's genucel.com slash Drew, G-E-N-U-C-E-L.com slash D-R-E-W. Over the last few months, no doubt you've heard a lot about spike protein, certainly on this program. The reality is once lockdowns are well behind us, we will likely still be dealing with the effects of COVID and potentially the COVID-19 vaccines. Therefore, the spike protein may prove to be an important part of our story. With that in mind, I want to introduce you to the wellness company's spike support formula. Whether you've been vaccinated or not, spike protein may be something you have become concerned about. Good news is that there's some interesting research on how to potentially deal with it. Studies have suggested that natokinase and dandelion root are showing some potential in protecting you and your family. Our friend Dr. Peter McCullough and the team at the wellness company have the only product on the market that contains both natokinase and dandelion root. In addition to the natokinase and the dandelion root, the wellness company's spike support formula also includes natural antioxidant ingredients such as black sativa, extract, green tea, and iris sea moss, all thought to help boost immune health. Go to twc.health slash Drew to order today. Use code Drew at checkout for 10% off today. President Trump recently issued a warning from his Mar-a-Lago home, quote, our currency is crashing and will soon no longer be the world standard, which will be our greatest defeat, frankly, in 200 years. There are three reasons the central banks are dumping the U.S. dollar, inflation, deficit spending, and our insurmountable national debt. The fact is there is one asset that has withstood famine, wars, political and economic upheaval dating back to biblical times, gold. And you can own it in a tax-sheltered retirement account with the help of Birch Gold. That's right, Birch Gold will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k, maybe from a previous employer, into an IRA in gold. And the best part, you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Just visit birchgold.com drew for your free info kit. They'll hold your hand through the entire process. Think about this. When currencies fail, gold is a safe haven. How much more time does the dollar have? Birch Gold has an A-plus rating with Better Business Bureau and thousands of happy customers. I do not give financial advice, and previous performance is no guarantee of future performance. Visit birchgold.com slash Drew to get your free info kit on gold. That is B-I-R-C-H-G-O-L-D dot com slash D-R-E-W. Some platforms have banned the discussion of controversial topics. If this episode ends here, the rest of the show is available at drdrew.tv. There's nothing in medicine that doesn't boil down to a risk-benefit calculation. It is the mandate public health to consider the impact of any particular mitigation scheme on the entire population. This is uncharted territory, Drew. Dr. Kelly Victory, welcome back. Dr. Peter McCullough. Hey, Dr. McCullough, thanks so much for joining us. I know how crazy busy your schedule is, so appreciate you um, you making time for us. Um, before we, we, I'm going to pick up on, there's so many things I want to ask you about, but uh, I think it's fair to say you and I have both suffered the slings and arrows from the beginning of this thing. We were both uh, really on the forefront of this, and we suffered everything from uh, you know cancellation to character assassination. Of course, pointing out things like the ineptitude 
idiocy of men, the dangers of the lockdowns, the idiocy of school closures, and now fast forward to the overwhelming and irrefutable evidence of severe harms from these vaccines. And unfortunately, although it would be certainly, um, I can understand the the desire perhaps to do an I told you so victory lap because you and I have been proven now to be right. Uh, and in, even Anthony Fauci would acknowledge that we were right about the vast majority of this. I've said from the, there's really no time for that. There are too many people suffering severe injuries from these vaccines in particular, as well as all the other things I mentioned. And and it is incumbent upon us, I believe, to really rally all hands on deck. How can we help these people? So I want to start with that positive thing, which is the natokinase. You just posted today um, a mm-hmm. substack talking specifically about natokinase. I've talked about it on this show before, but let's start with that. Start with how here's something that we can do. Uh, you know, you were obviously probably the premier person talking about what can we do to treat COVID. Now it's what can we do to help people now? So start, if you would, with talking about natokinase, how you got to that and, and where you see its application. Sure. You know, most people understand now that in about 3,000 peer-reviewed papers on vaccine injury syndromes, fatal and non-fatal, what's really causing the problem is the spike protein, which is the spine on the surface of the virus. And most people now have had both the viral infection and the vaccines. So we can't separate them. They've actually had COVID and they've had the vaccines. In the United States, we know 75% of Americans have taken a vaccine. So they've been loaded with the spike protein. They didn't get much protection. They wear out after about six months, but they, they actually have the spike protein, which lasts in the body, we believe, for a very long time, many months, if not a year or more. So with the viral infection or the vaccines, the spike protein stays within the body and it's found in the heart, the brain, the vital organs, and it's causing problems. Uh, and we believe it's related to a nervous system problems like a small fiber neuropathy. And so because the body appears to have problems breaking down the spike protein and clearing it out, there's been a search for what could actually dissolve the spike protein. It does appear to have vulnerabilities in it, what's called proteolytic cleavage joints. And I give great credit to the Japanese who early on discovered that an enzyme produced from the breakdown of soy, so Bacillus subtilis natto, is called natokinase. It's an endogenous thrombolytic uh, digestive uh, enzyme, if you will. The Japanese have been using this for heart and vascular disease now for 20 years. It's safe. It is a form of a mild blood thinner that it dissolves the spike protein nearly completely. Today on my Substack was an in vitro study showing that if the virus is trying to attack a cell, it actually can't do it if natokinase there is dissolving the spike protein. Now, I want to be careful. I can't make therapeutic claims because human studies are not yet done. It'll probably take many years to get large prospective randomized trials that we need. Many people are saying, listen, it's a safe supplement now with the caveats we know. Let's give it a try in treating patients with long COVID or vaccine injury syndromes. And the anecdotes are coming in and they're very positive. It's slow to work, but they're very positive. My experience so far is about two months of supplementation Patients seem to improve, whether that's spontaneous or attributed to that or other medicines, but it's all positive. And correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, but natto, which is, as I understand it, a fermented kind of a cheese-like product that is consumed as part of the natural diet in Japan, it is 
this fermented product that has this enzyme within it and that it is, has other health benefits in addition to the fact that you, you, it's been found that it might break apart or break down these toxic spikes that are found on the outside of COVID, but it also breaks down and helps with blood clotting and helps with atherosclerotic disease, if I'm not mistaken. It's true. There's two papers. They're mixed on progression of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. One shows benefit, one shows neutrality. Tends to lower blood pressure a little bit, lower cholesterol a little bit, and lower blood glucose. So uh, it's safe. The caveats, again, are uh, uh, it's a blood thinner, so bleeding, uh, mucosal uh, nosebleeds or bleeding, uh, easy bruising, or bleeding while uh, brushing teeth. The other caveat is soy allergy. If someone has a soy allergy, you want to be careful. It can recur. Uh, but it's been used now for two decades by the Japanese and the discovery, and I think the most impressive studies by Tanakawa and colleagues, showing near complete dissolution of the spike protein in preclinical models, intact cells, and then in, uh, in homogenized uh, material. Wow, this is important because we do believe the spike protein, which is installed after vaccination and after the illness, is causing the problem. And again, I think the important part is very similar to what happened when, when the uh, virus was first out there. People like you and other real scientists, real physicians, people who are dedicated to their, to their trade, were looking for solutions, not just saying, oh, live in fear, hide in your basement, bathe in Purell, wear a mask and hope to heck that somebody uh, hacks up a vaccine. And so likewise, here we are now after the pandemic. And you and others are saying, okay, okay, we, we have a lot of people harmed and, and who are suffering. What are the things we can do? In other words, it's the opposite of that therapeutic nihilism that you have talked right. about from the beginning. And so I think that it is incumbent upon us to do an all hands on deck and say, okay, how are we going to help these people? And hopefully natokinase and some of these uh, types of supplements can, can get us there. Um, now I want to talk a little bit about you know what you and Drew are saying at the beginning, this egregious amount of censorship and the cancel culture and the corruption that has gone on. Um, I found it interesting that Anthony Fauci came out recently and acknowledged that, quote, mistakes were made, uh, including his tacit acknowledgement that face masks don't work. He managed to do so while absolving himself of all responsibility uh, for what happened. Where do you see things going with the leadership, public health leadership in this country? Yeah, I, I think people have really lost their trust. I was struck by the release by Freedom of Information Act, the communication between Fauci and uh, Francis Collins, head of the NIH, uh, when the Great Barrington Declaration was proposed by Jay Bhattacharya at Stanford, Martin Koldorf at Harvard, and Sunitra Gupta at Oxford, esteemed scientists. The Great Barrington Declaration was basically a proposal that we protect high-risk seniors, take special measures, and let the rest of society kind of move on and we'll work our way through the pandemic. What uh, Fauci and Collins interchange was that there's a fringe epidemiologist uh, who's put this forward, and can we do something in social media to crush him? Right. This is amazing. That degree, they should be asking him to into the NIH and, and, and have a discussion. When I proposed early treatment, published it widely, published, uh, you know, as best I could. I have now, um, uh, uh, you know, I have over approaching 700 peer-reviewed publications in the National Library of Medicine, approaching 70 in COVID-19. 
one of the most published people you're ever going to have on the show or elsewhere. That means I've just looked at more data. I've spent more time in scholarship. People like myself, Jay Bhattacharya, we should have been welcomed in to help guide the pandemic response instead of you know, being the target of the crushing reprisal. Right. And, and not only not only getting kicked off of social media, but you, along with people like Dr. John Littell, who's a friend of this show, Meryl Nass and others have been the targets for, you know, losing your medical license or losing your your board certification, being kicked off of, you know, kicked out of staff, you know, hospital staff meetings and so on. And uh, this is this is the stuff really of the cultural revolution in China. You know, what, what, what differentiates us from North Korea when these sorts of things are happening? It's true. We've seen a wave of uh, totalitarianism, authoritarian thinking. Remember, this is a novel pandemic. Now we have a novel wave of, of long COVID and vaccine injury syndrome. This is where we need all opinions out. We need everybody has a fair voice on this. Let the science guide us. Uh, you know, I've been struck with, uh, you know, professional attack by the American Board of Internal Medicine. Uh, you know, I've had to get lawyers and now my case is, <clears throat> is kind of stayed at the appeal level internally right now. But, you know, I'm a top graduate of a top medical school. I trained in epidemiology at one of the best schools of public health. I trained at the number one internal medicine program in the United States, most published person in my field uh, in the world in history before COVID. Really? I'm going to have a board try to lay out attack because I'm trying to help people through my clinical practice and my scholarship and my role as a public figure. And I was a public figure before COVID. So it's not like, right. you know, I came out of nowhere. People knew me. I had chaired uh, programs for, uh, for the National Institutes of Health, Data Safety Monitoring Board, overall principal investigator of clinical trials. I'd lectured before the Congressional Oversight Panel in 2007 in the FDA, European Medicine Agency, New York Academy of Sciences. So I have a pristine academic track record. I still have it. And I think the American board knows it and they've backed down. I've never had any troubles with my state licensure, but I'm willing to take a very firm posture with them as well. No, and, and it's part of this, guys, been... if I could say, Kelly, if I could jump on a little bit here, that, that you know, uh, it's, it, it is, you know, uh, Kelly, the stuff of uh, Maoist policy during the Cultural Revolution, mm -hmm. but strangely, it has been sort of carried out really, I, I just look back on this couple of years, instigated by the press and certainly winds blown along by our public health officials right. and governors and things. But the press, when, when I was screaming against the, you know, settle down everybody, the person, the, the group I was yelling at was the press. I could see the panic porn they were attempting to uh, induce. They, they had just been through all kinds of panic around President Trump, and this was just now a way to use that mechanism that they discovered to 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 continue this incredible uh, excess uh, rather than actual reporting. But my question is, uh, Peter has occasionally uh, lately been talking about the fact that they seem to be getting staging, they're staging for another one. It's as though any little virus, they, they tried to do it with monkeypox. Uh, now it looks like they're getting ready to do it with Marburg virus. Is, is that true or am I reading too much into this? You know, we're hearing these types of alarming uh, headlines. And the best example you mentioned was monkeypox. Monkeypox have been around for decades, sporadic zoonotic outbreaks. We had an outbreak in the United States in the 70s. Uh, and there, you know, believe it or not, the WHO declared a national monkeypox emergency President Biden declared a national emergency. And, uh, you know, I was studying this carefully. We had a, a case in Dallas a year earlier 
He didn't spread it to anyone. He'd come from Africa. We realized it's a, it's a low spread. It was easily handled. We have a drug called Ticoviramat. It's very effective. He was treated fine. So fortunately with monkeypox, we got out ahead of it. Uh, it adapted a human-to-human -human spread through uh, sexual contact, largely uh, male, either um, you know, male-to-male -male sexual contact. You weren't allowed contact. to say that. You couldn't say that. You couldn't say that it was a particular risk group. For the first time in I medical would, history, you weren't allowed to talk about how it's transmitted and who is at risk. You have to not say that. Not say that. Drew, I, Drew, I was walking on eggs trying to do this, but it did change. It was a very important paper by Thornhill in New England Journal of Medicine. So the point is, we got ahead of this in the media. I came out and said, listen, we can handle this. And, you know, it really just kind of died. It fell out of the media stream. January 31st, with no fanfare, no announcement, it just dropped as a national emergency. So, so talk a little bit. So, yeah, I was Marburg is where I was going next. So, uh, yes, uh. we we started hearing um, reports of isolated cases of Marburg first in the UK and then elsewhere. You know, let's lay it out first for people who might not know what Marburg virus is where it's normally found in, in sub-Saharan Africa, what the cases are like, you know, clearly it's far more lethal than any of these other, than monkeypox or COVID or anything else we're talking about. But start with what is Marburg virus and what do you think the actual risk is for it becoming a pandemic? Right, so Marburg virus is a single-stranded RNA virus. It's related to Ebola. And, uh, it, you know, there's been sporadic outbreaks for decades, just like monkeypox, for decades. Uh, Marburg, Germany is where it was named, uh, and it largely is in uh, pockets in Africa. It has very small and brief outbreaks. It's highly contagious, and in facilities like the backwoods of Africa, uh, you know, where there's little ICU support or medicines, it can have a high mortality. I think a, a modern case of Marburg's today uh, you know, with good ICU support would probably be a very supportable illness. We had experience with a related illness, Ebola, in Dallas a few years ago. And so, you know, we were, it was right, we were in the epicenter of it at, you know, Presbyterian Hospital. Um, but what we know here is that there are viruses out there that cause severe syndromes. Marburg is uh, associated with, the, is considered a hemorrhagic fever. So there's mucosal bleeding. Uh, and that's, you know, some of the images that people see. Uh, but the bottom line is, I think with good ICU support, it's uh, manageable. It's not going to spread like SARS-CoV-2. Uh, it, it's already been studied for, gosh, four or five decades. It's not something now to bring up as an imminent threat. And so I guess that's the question. And, you know, I read your Substack about it is, you know, why are they, you know, they ran monkeypox up the flagpole uh, that it failed to, to, to cause the amount of fear that they had hoped, uh, although they really did try pretty desperately, as Drew said, to act as if everyone was at risk for this, to not allow you to talk about who the real risk groups were, and to certainly not talk about how it could very quickly uh, be, be nipped in the bud. Uh, why, you know, now with Marburg, why do you think they are doing this? What do you think their end goal is? You know, I think overtly they probably say that this is in the spirit of pandemic readiness. We'll probably see some readiness discussions about other illnesses, Ebola, anthrax. Uh, we can anticipate uh, some of these. Uh, you know, pandemic preparedness now is a hot topic. Uh, so there is uh, an entire organization founded by the World Economic Forum and the Gates Foundation called CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation. They have a lot of funding. And so they are doing a lot of preparatory 
planning exercises, uh, you know, training efforts. So people have said, listen, there's going to be another pandemic. I don't know if that's the case, but there's a lot of effort in preparing for that. And I think because of this, these media stories get, get legs underneath them. I, I'm worried um, that, that they that group has become a, a liability. I really do. This I, I don't even call them pandemic preparedness anymore. I call them pandemic ink. It, it's really just a bunch of hammers looking for a nail. And it really does not have much of the usual risk-reward decision-making that we as physicians have to make. I thought of something else that was interesting as it pertains to pandemic policy. I heard Michelle Obama being interviewed. I happen to, this is maybe a year old, something like that, interview by Oprah. She was being interviewed. And she was talking about bringing her kids home from school during the darkest hours of the pandemic and how scared she was. And she said, fortunately, I was living with a former president. And that former president was president during a major pandemic. And she almost went so far as to say he told us to shut up, essentially, that this is not a lot different than what I, I they tried to shut me down, too, is sort of what she was kind of alluding to. Like during H1N1, Obama was recommended to shut the world down, too, and he didn't. We need to hear from him. If that is true, if I'm not reading inaccurately between the lines of what Michelle Obama was alluding to, we need to hear from him because he could be a major, major force for good in just balancing things because he did make the decision not to shut the world down. I got H1N1. It was horrible. It was it was worse than COVID, but he didn't shut the world down because of it. I think those are fair points. We're always going to have to ask the question, is something in the future big enough to try to make global decisions, shutting the entire world down, or should we take a more targeted approach? I mentioned the Great Barrington Declaration, which was which which suggested uh, you know, protective measures for seniors, vaccines for seniors. You know, it, it, it was just a targeted approach. And many think looking back, that was far more for rational. And so to shut down schools, you know, yeah. it was just, it just yeah. went too far. And uh, I, what we're really talking about is the contagious aspect of fear. Fear spreads from person to person. It's a mental contagion. Yeah, I think, Dr. McCall, you are you are more generous than I uh, when giving people <laughs> credit for the, well, you give people credit for the idea that, <laughs> no, you know, you give people credit for the idea that it was a novel virus and we didn't know. And, and, and I would submit that uh, the science didn't change, that we've known for decades that face masks do uh, fundamentally nothing to stop the spread of respiratory viruses. We've known for decades that lockdowns are far more damaging uh, than they do good. They penalize the entire population rather than the targeted group who are actually at risk. Uh, we knew from the beginning that children were at a de minimis risk from COVID, and there was never any rationale for shutting down schools and on and on. And, um, and, and Kelly, truly, Kelly, I thought of you today. Just I'm going to interrupt you. I thought today I was at, I was at my own uh, urology visit, and uh, in there was a big sign that said six feet saves lives. And I I, I literally laughed out loud, and I, oh your your God. face yeah. appeared to me. <laughs> that six feet saves lives. Really? <laughs> What's the evidence? No, 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 not zero. But what I want to ask you, you know, and, and uh, we will perhaps all three of us disagree about this. Do you at this point, uh, Dr. McCullough, do you see any rationale, given the amount of data that you've looked at with regard to the COVID vaccines, bivalent or otherwise, newer, do you see any reason that these vaccines should still be on the market today, given the amount of data that we have about adverse events? 
No, I do not. On December 7th, 2022, I called in the U.S. Senate for all of them to be removed off the market. I'm in line with the World Council for Health, which made that call based on their pharmacovigilance report June 11th, 2022. So they should be off the market uh, because of safety reasons. And I think that's something that's really that we really need to talk about. Um, this isn't sort of for some risk groups. The reality is that the COVID, uh, the variants right now are very, very mild. Uh, they cause something akin to a a cold. Uh, most people can be treated very easily with over-the-counter medications. People aren't even going to their doctors for the current symptomatology, let alone uh, being admitted to the hospital or dying. That is the reality. Uh, and the number of severe adverse events, really, I, as I said, I think the data are unassailable uh, that these that these vaccines have caused uh, untold harm. And I think that, you know, really I am with you in believing that we need to call for a complete and total recall from the market. Do you think that is likely to happen? No, I don't think so because the vaccines are considered countermeasures. That's a military term. And anytime we have a national security uh, emergency, which is the COVID-19, and there's countermeasures, it's like a military term. It, it means that whatever military decision, it doesn't mean how many collateral injuries are, it's not going to be removed from the market. Uh, but you see all kinds of signs that the government agencies really, you, you know, are not behind them. Uh, this week, uh, Biden administration dropped all the mandates uh, for, uh, you know, the remainder of the government workers, uh, even incoming people to the country. Uh, you can see this uh, sweeping across the globe that people are dropping the vaccines, but they won't be dropped because under the PrEP Act, these are considered countermeasures. They're going to be continued to be uh, available out there in the world. The only way they're going to stop is if people stop taking them altogether. And uh, we're, we're, we're approaching that right now. Uh, we know the COVID Community States Project weighed in, by the way, a huge sample, 25,000 people is Northeastern and Harvard. Only 25% of Americans took the, 75% uh, 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 of Americans took a vaccine, 25% didn't, 25% unvaccinated. That's a big number. The CDC said 8%. And what the investigators right. found is the CDC was overcounting people who lost their vaccine cards. They were just given another vaccine card and counting them again. So uh, now 25% of Americans never took a vaccine. I didn't take one best decision I ever made. Yeah, I'm asked frequently what the numbers are. I know that the CDC said 92% of Americans are vaccinated. Um, I think people have good reason to be dishonest in both directions. Uh, there are many people, certainly, who said that they got vaccinated when they didn't. Uh, there are lots of fake vaccine cards out there. That's the reality. People who wanted to travel or go to restaurants or, or whatever it was, and didn't want to get vaccinated. So there are many people who I think who said they were vaccinated when they weren't. And then likewise, I suspect there are many people who got vaccinated who now feel uh, that they made a bad decision. They feel that they were duped and they don't want to acknowledge that they made this. So they're saying, oh no, I never took one. So I wonder if we will ever really get a, a good handle on how many folks are vaccinated. But you believe that the that a more realistic number would be somewhere around 25% of Americans are not vaccinated? Right, the COVID Community States program, you can find it online, again, Northeastern University and Harvard, 25% of adults unvaccinated. It's interesting because, uh, you know, the 25% who say they didn't take a vaccine like me did so for very specific reasons. Many of us suffered, uh, you know, professional or family or social re reprisal because of this. 
were likely to be voters in the, in the upcoming sets of elections, and only 60% of Americans vote. So nearly half of the voting adult population did not take a vaccine. It's so interesting because the candidates will have to figure out what their stance is on the vaccines. Well, I, I am encouraged to think that that number is 25%. You am not vaccinated uh, for COVID. Interestingly, and I've told this story before um, on air, I have two allergies. Uh, and one of them is a very severe allergy to polyethylene glycol. And I was hospitalized um, twice during the pandemic for, for an orthopedic uh, injury and had to have surgery. And I cannot tell you, you know, my chart has embl had emblazoned on the front how they do with allergies, big red letters, you know, allergy, polyethylene glycol. I probably had 50, five, zero healthcare professionals during those hospitalizations come in and try to convince me that I needed to be vaccinated. And they're their response when I said, have you seen my allergy to polyethylene glycol, one of the key ingredients in these vaccines? And their answer was, well, if you have anaphylaxis, you're here in the hospital, so we can take care of you. We'll be able to treat you. Can you imagine if you, as a doctor, you know, gave penicillin knowingly to somebody who had penicillin allergy emblazoned on the front of their chart? I mean, we have lost our collective minds if we're at that point. I'm glad you mentioned that polyethylene glycol severe allergies are important. Remember the consent form of the FAQ for the vaccine say if you have a severe allergy to any component of the vaccine, you shouldn't take it. So you know, even right. even the official government materials say you shouldn't take it. Remember uh, uh, sports uh, football superstar Aaron Rodgers had a very superior polyethylene glycol allergy, and that was the reason why he didn't take the vaccine. Mm -hmm. He got sick with COVID. He got the McCullough protocol. I, I had just gone on with Joe Rogan. Uh, you know, he got through it. So did Joe. They, you know, kind of the innovations that we all put together uh, in early treatment worked and, and they don't need a vaccine. So I'm really yeah. glad Aaron didn't take the vaccine because we could have lost our, our one of our favorite quarterbacks. He's now on the Jets. So New York has him. But, you know, people have to make smart decisions. You made a smart decision. Some of the deaths that have happened right in the vaccine center were probably fatal um, anaphylactoid reactions that couldn't be resuscitated. Yeah, Dr. Speaking McCullough, really quick, a uh, couple, couple quick, couple quick things from my uh, camp, really quick. Uh, people are chatting away on a restream, and there was a, they were wanted a little clarification on your vaccine. I have two questions. The one is clarification on your vaccine history. Did you not take any vaccine because somebody said they thought you had taken an initial shot but no boosters? No, I never took the COVID nineteen vaccine prior to COVID. I had taken all the vaccines in the CDC ACIP schedule, including the doctor vaccines. And I took more yep. vaccines when I went to India a few years ago. So I, you know, I readily accept vaccines. I, you know, I don't have any personally have any problem with the vaccines, but when COVID came, Dr. Drew, I had already had COVID early and I just recovered mm. from it. And when they rolled out, I said, listen, I just went through it. I, you know, I'm not comfortable with this. I didn't take the vaccine. That's why I laugh sense. about yeah, when people I laugh when people call me anti-vax. I'm saying I'm one of the most heavily vaccinated people you know. I've been vaccinated for more things than most people because of areas of the world I've chosen to travel. Uh, but like you, I said uh, th this one this one's not for me. So um, speaking of NFL players, uh, I, you uh, were relatively outspoken as was I about Demar Hamlin. Um, clearly, Demar Hamlin um, has the the narrative now is that we're supposed to believe that his cardiac arrest was a result of commotio cordis, 
uh, I, I saw the play and I assume you have seen it many, many times and I don't find it a plausible explanation uh, in any way, shape or form. And I hope for his sake that he has an implanted uh, defibrillator because I think that um, the risk of his having a, a repeat event is is high. What are your thoughts on that? I agree. I was on Tucker Carlson within 24 hours of the arrest and you know, I was the only public figure doctor that told Tucker in the world he was going to survive. I told Brandon Fox News, he'll walk out of the hospital, he'll survive. He had very good resuscitation. I watched it carefully, but he had a primary cardiac arrest on the field. And, uh, you know, the number one cause of that in some, an athlete who's been screened for other causes of sudden death is actually COVID-19 vaccine-induced myocarditis. The guidelines with myocarditis say if an athlete has it, they can't go on the sports field because a surge of adrenaline will precipitate a cardiac arrest. The NFL said that 95% of the players took the vaccine. So the number one in the differential was COVID-19 vaccine-induced myocarditis. Commodial cordis, which is a blow to the chest, typically by a baseball to an unprotected mm -hmm. sternum, that was ruled out because that causes immediate ventricular fibrillation. So if, if, if baseball hits the chest, the player goes down instantaneously. Uh, what had happened is uh, he had tackled the player, got up, clapped his hands, and then he went down. Commodio cordis has never happened in the NFL or football because the pads protect the breastbone and the helmet is too diffuse. And so a, a tackle to the chest doesn't create the same force as a, and, you know, as a hundred rarely, rarely in a, rarely in a, in adults, usually pre-adolescent males, that that's the, the thin chest wall is sort of a necessity right. for that. I, I would, I would, I would offer one other theory, which is pulmonary embolus because he re-arrested, he re-arrested once it got him off the field and pulmonary embolus, it's really common for people to re-arrest and his neurologic status approved days before his pulmonary status, which is another pulmonary embolus sort of thing. Well, Dr. Drew, here's another interpretation. Watch carefully. He actually, um, they had to turn his head. So when he arrested, he actually must have just drank some Gatorade. I think he actually aspirated is what happened. Uh, because well, that's the other possibility. Uh, yeah, I agree. Because yeah, he's right. That was, he, that's the other reason his lungs may have lingered. Yes. Or right. shock lung. Those right. are the other two possibilities. Right. Yeah. But, but, but uh, here's the situation. His relative that said he re-arrested later on, he recanted that and said he was just the, the, the lay person misinterpreted what was going on in the ICU. Okay. But here's the thing. Okay. If, he had, if he had pulmonary embolism, he would be on anticoagulants. He can't return to football. Right. Okay. So that's out. Right. And if he had a primary cardiac arrest due to vaccine-induced myocarditis, an ICD implanted, and he, again, he can't return to football. He could do some other activities. So he's, believe it or not, he's going to be the first player in history, according to what's been publicly stated, to have Commodio Cordis uh, playing pro football, have a primary arrest on the field, and return with no ICD. So he's setting yeah. all record. Yeah. And yeah. I, as a cardiologist, I care for patients like this. I'm concerned he's at risk for a repeat yeah. arrest. Yeah, one more I, quick I, one, I which would be he could have been he could have do six months of anticoagulants and then go back to playing. After it's been what three or four months now already, he could be on the tail end of his anticoagulation course and return. Also, uh, I want you to talk a little about Jamie Foxx and what's going on there. He, I hear he did an interview today. I'm delighted to hear that he seems at least cognitively intact. But this sounds like a terrible thing. He's been in the hospital for weeks. That you don't do that for nothing. It's true. He must have had a significant stroke or, or complications. And, you know, I know Jamie, he took pictures with me. We had a private conversation about, uh, you know, COVID, the risks and, and what have you. So he's going to have to have his own 
way to communicate a personal health crisis with the public. He's a great guy. I really respect him. Terrific actor. We, we wish him the best. But, you know, stroke in a young person, again, raises concerns because the vaccines Crazy, yeah. are associated with stroke. There's a paper in JAMA by Von Dagberhild. You're going to be blown away with this. They described 7,750 strokes or intracranial hemorrhages within 28 days of the vaccine. It was published in JAMA. It is an unbelievable signal. So the first thing you see when a young person in stroke, again, you think of COVID-19 vaccination. Yeah, and we are seeing an unprecedented number of young people uh, with sudden deaths and with inexplicable uh, cases of turbo cancers, uh, people dying within uh, days or weeks of being diagnosed with the first cancer, resurgence of cancers that had been previously deemed to be in remission, and all kinds of things that... Um, Really, it, it, they have not been explained. Uh, and the reality is that the HHS and, and the CDC own the data in VAERS. It is their system, uh, yet they have really been remiss uh, in, in analyzing the data on their own. I don't see that it's going to happen unless it continues to happen through the private sector and through people like you and Ed Dowd and other people, uh, Naomi Wolf, who are really diving into it. Um, but I don't think there's any other way to... You know, to parse the data or to understand the data than that these are clearly related to the vaccines. We need to merge the all-cause mortality data in the National Death Index and the Vaccine Administration data. The CDC holds the data. They can merge it. And if there's no temporal correlation, there, you know, there won't be any. But indeed, if people are dying in large numbers within 30 days of the vaccine, that's a reasonable regulatory window of concern. Uh, you know, that would support, again, this global call to get these off the market before more people die. In your clinical practice, are you continuing to see cardiac related issues related to the, to the vaccine that you had, for example, say a year ago? Yeah, we're seeing the cases all day long. In fact, I'm at uh, American First News Network. We're shooting the second opinion. And we have with us a young gal who's a terrific uh, CrossFit athlete, a pilot, suffered myopericarditis with one shot of Moderna. It's ruined her. She still isn't back. It's been about 18 months. She's you know, seen three or four doctors, went to the Mayo Clinic, MRI confirmed, vaccine-induced myocarditis. I saw her today in the office. We're gonna go on TV here in a few minutes, uh, but this is every day now. Large blood clots that are not resolving with blood thinners. I'm very worried about this. Uh, the largest blood clots I've seen clinically. FDA has published on this, a paper by Wu and colleagues, publishing blood clots in about 3,900 patients going from the ankle to the hip, about 11% were fatal. Mm. These are all in the peer-reviewed published literature, greatly concerned about the cardiovascular, neurologic, thromboembolic, and immunologic complications of the vaccines. You know, you, you mentioned that this woman you're talking about um, is not only an athlete, but a pilot. Um, there are huge safety concerns, I think, with regard to, um, you know, the, the health, the overall health uh, and fitness of people like pilots or bus drivers. You know, I've heard multiple reports of school buses, you know, crashing when the school bus driver became unconscious. We know that it's happening in the commercial airline uh, industry with, with pilots. Are you seeing any, you know, any new uh, recommendations for, you know, what should we be doing with pilots before we allow them to fly or school bus drivers? There's a paper in JAMA in 2020 by Daniels and colleagues, you know, with COVID, there was such a concern with COVID before the vaccines that it would cause 
myocarditis. There was an official Big Ten screening program where they had a tiered strategy of blood biomarkers, EKG, echo, and MRI, and they adequately tested. They didn't find much with COVID since COVID uh, you know, yields such, such few cases of, of clinical myocarditis, no hospitalizations and deaths in the athletes. But that program, which they jettisoned after COVID, they should have actually had that for the athletes. And I think for the pilots, they ought to go through some formalized screening program. Again, blood test, EKG, cardiac imaging, all based on clinical judgment. We hope the majority of them are fine, but there's a great concern. You know, I've been impressed by a paper by um, Schmeling and colleagues from Denver, this, uh, from Denmark, this is striking. Of everybody who took the vaccine and they knew who had the complications, a third of people have zero complications, none. Two thirds of people have some moderate, uh, you know, low level complications, the like arm swelling, fever, et cetera. And 4.2% have catastrophic things happen to them. That's in the paper by Schmeling from Denmark. So some people must have gotten bad lots. It's 4.2% of these vials which uh, you know, either have uh, you know, an excess amount of messenger RNA or contaminants or something is probably related to specific vials and doesn't apply to everybody taking the vaccine. Yeah, we've talked, we reported on that. I've, I've reported on that from the beginning. They, very clearly, uh, there is a disproportionate number of adverse events that occur with a relatively small number of the lots. I mean, early on, they had that website, you know, how bad is my batch? Uh, and it clearly indicated some either inconsistency or lack of quality control in the manufacturing process itself or something worse. Uh, but I, I think you're right. I think there's clearly some element that's a, uh, that some lots had either more mRNA or because of the multi-use vials that the people who are giving these right. injections, you, know, you have a multi-use vial say, that holds 50 uh, doses in it, and you're getting these things in the parking lot at the local Walmart. Uh, roll, you know, and and you've got people giving the shots during the heat of the um, of the uh, vaccination program. A lot of the people giving the shots were not, you know, physicians or or trained in giving injections. Uh, they were literally it was mass, you know, these mass inoculation centers. And so I suspect that there was a lot lack of quality that resulted in, unfortunately, a disproportionate number of, of cases happening from from a small number of lots. That's my that's well, my just, take on it. Just to clarify, I think it's six doses per vial, but the multi-use, remember they use single-use vials in the randomized trials, multi-use vials and injecting air and leaving them out would actually degrade the messenger RNA. So some people, because of that phenomenon, probably ended up with few side effects. But oh, the ones that yeah, the ones that had very good if, uh, and, you know, product transport. And so they, they and could have been if you loaded. remember, uh, when we talked to Sasha Latipova, she had right. evidence that there were, were some serious manufacturing shortcomings that would lead right. to exactly what you guys are talking about. Yeah, and well, and the, you know, the, the lipid nanoparticles are its own, you know, um, there, there are uh, deleterious negative, you know, side effects from the lipid nanoparticles themselves, independent of the mRNA and independent of production of spike proteins. So there are just an awful lot of components of these vaccines, I think, that uh, could be causing some of these adverse events. But I am with Dr. McCullough in believing that there is absolutely no rationale and no scientific justification for allowing these things to remain on, on the market at this point. In the in the last few minutes here, Dr. McCullough, you've been so nice to to give us a, another hour of your time. What else would you what what have we not covered today that you think uh, is important for us to hear about? 
I think the big vistas now are going to be, uh, I think very few people will take any more vaccines. Even Dr. Drew is, you know, showing equipoise at this point in time. And, you know, which is, which is fine. Everybody had their own view on, I had equipoise initially, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm more hawkish on safety. Um, I think very few people would be taking any more vaccines. We need to shift our attention towards long COVID, which is a real syndrome, and vaccine injury, and actually the two together, since most people actually have both uh, research funding. I'm very excited about now three papers, one high quality trial, hyperbaric oxygen appears to be really working in these syndromes, but well, this is wonderful. We've covered nanokinase. We don't know if the other, um, the other peptidases work, seropeptidase and lumbricase. Uh, the blood clotting syndromes, my experience is they need intensive anticoagulation. Unfortunately, they're not going away in three or six months. In my experience, I have some patients now well over a year, no resolution of the thrombi induced by the vaccine. Uh, and we need constant vigilance here. The, the thing that's really getting people worried is how long do these vaccines pose a risk of sudden death? Today, we heard about Tori Bowie, who won uh, an Olympic gold medal in 2016. And now seven years later, she's had sudden death. I'm going to have to leave it here. I have to get going uh, to the next shoot. But thank you so much for having me on the show. Be sure to follow me on across social media. Go to my website, PeterMcCulloughMD.com. So great to be back on Dr. Drew. And this will not be taken down from YouTube. <laughs> Dr. Thank McCullough, you appreciate, appreciate your time. Amen. Thank Take you care as of yourself. always. We'll see you soon. So as interesting, Kelly, I mean, he's, uh, as always, full of very, and he, I, he, I feel like his point of view has softened a little bit. Am I, am I accurate on that? I, I, I know he's, he's gotten clearer, clear. I know he's now very much clearer that he would like the vaccines taken down, but I, I, has he softened his position or is that just my perception? I, I think he's always he's always so measured, and it's one of the things that makes him yeah, uh, yeah. really wonderful. He's very measured about things. He he mm -hmm. um, he always cites the data. He always cites the studies. He has a great command of the most recent research, uh, and he is with knowledge. And I think importantly, Drew, and maybe what you're picking up on is that he always is willing to acknowledge that it that the vaccines aren't the only problem and that long COVID is in yeah. fact a real entity yeah. and that the virus itself yeah. causes a problem for a lot of people. So I think that's really, he's not just sort of a, it's all vaccines and that's the only problem he's willing to acknowledge um, really the, the importance right. of, uh, and so I think that's what you're picking up on. Um, but uh, he's a great guest and and we, we need to keep having him back regularly because he's always up on, yeah. on the latest. I agree. My uh, commitment got pushed back a few minutes. Do you want to take a couple calls real quick just to see sure. what people are thinking? Sure. Okay, sure. let's do that. Susan, are you cool with that? Yeah, I'm fine. Oh, yeah, you're fine? Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> Howard to Charm, this is uh, coming up. Uh, I see your guys' hands up. I see you all. We'll, we'll get you up there in just a second. Um, and you have to, as once I call you up, uh, you'll be out on multiple streaming platforms. Don't forget. And you have to unmute yourself, the mic in the lower left hand corner, right after we get you uh, hooked up. There you are. Okay. So unfortunately, because we have limited time, I can't wait while people, uh, get things set up. So that's Mr. Love next. Uh, Mr. Love will give you a chance to come on up here. I know your hand is up. I see you. There you are. Unmute yourself, Mr. Love, so we can hear you. There you are. 
Oh, hey, Dr. Drew. I just heard uh, Dr. Peter Mercola. Uh, uh, thank you guys for bringing me up on the platform. Mm-hmm. Um, but Dr. Drew and Caleb, I know I was brought up last week. I'd actually like to recuse myself and actually bring up answers for Sean, uh, if you would. All I right. think he's got a very telling right. story to tell. Well, he, he has, I will, I'll bring him up again. He has been up here before. Uh, he, he has a son that had a horrible, really you know, just an unbelievable story of vaccine reaction. And of course, yeah. like many family members and patients with vaccine reactions, they're, they're marginalized. So uh, I will bring him. Thank you. Okay. Hold on, Mr. Love. We'll get him of course. up here. Yep. Uh, answers for Sean. There you are. Okay. All right. Have you heard this story, Kelly? It's an awful story. It's just, it's just heartbreaking. I don't, I don't know. I, yeah. I hear an awful lot of horrific uh, vaccine stories. I know, I know. Uh, you're on, sir. Thank you, Dr. Drew, and hello, Kelly. My 17-year-old son, who played hockey his whole life, died 33 days after his very first Pfizer vaccine. The cause of death was unascertained. Dr. Cole now has my son's tissue samples, thank God. And it's impossible for anyone in Canada to ever get the truth because not one pathologist here is staining slides for Spike. Mm. Right, I had to go to America to get help. And I, I get made fun of so much saying I'm lying. And, well, how can I ever prove the truth in Canada if no one can do it? And I don't even understand why they're not doing it. When Dr. Cole has offered to teach whoever wants to know. Thank God my son's slides are with Dr. Cole. What is is your first name again? I'm sorry. I know Sean is your son. It's Dan. Dan. Hey, Kelly, answer me this. Is is Dr. Cole going to publish his stuff? That's the one pushback I keep getting on his, his material. Is he got a plan to put well, it together think, in some way and publish it? Somewhere? Well, I think he's. I think he's trying to. He, you know, he's he's trying to help as many people as he can, and he's trying. He's offered to teach the uh, pathologists, as Dan pointed out. Yes, we have the stains. They've they are readily available to be able to differentiate between spike proteins that are as a result of the virus versus spike proteins that are in the tissues as a result of the vaccine. They stain differently. Mm-hmm. So it is critically important Mm -hmm. to be able to do those stains because you can prove, for example, this is vaccine-induced myocarditis or vaccine-induced nephritis versus that these are tissue injuries caused by having had the virus itself. So I I agree with Mm -hmm. Dan, unless you do those stains, and they're not difficult, uh, any pathologist can do them. They just need to do the appropriate tissue sampling and use the appropriate stains why they don't want to is beyond me. I don't know what kind of pressure they're getting. I know the kinds of pressure that Dr. McCullough and I got uh, to not say the things we were saying on the open airwaves. So I don't know if the same thing is happening in the pathology, um, you know, in, in within their own circles. Um, but I'm happy to hear that at least Sean's tissues are being evaluated, and hopefully you will get an answer yeah. to, to this heart wrenching question. And, and Dan, one. Why don't you let people know where they can go to read more and hopefully you'll update them on these uh, materials as they become available. Oh, you can come to my Twitter site and I'll be posting as soon as I hear something from Dr. Cole, I'll let the world know. And uh, I think it's very important to announce to the world. Answers, the truth. answers number four, Sean and Sean is Sean. 
S-E-A-N. So answers, number four, Sean, S-E-A-N. All right, yeah. Dan, I, I always, you know, we get very upset. I, you know, I can just, your story is just heartbreaking. I, I, when you first told it, Susan didn't recover for about a week. And, um, you know, we, 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 you know, I, I think you should have some answers and, uh, still not but, recovered. Yeah, I know. You well, never get over no. that. I know. I know. All right, Dan, thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Drew. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that story. I'm glad you were here for that, Kelly, if you hadn't heard that before, because we, yeah. we've talked to him a yeah. couple of times and each time it's like, oh, it's just, it just brings it home. Right. Uh, all right. This is kind of interest. Oh, here's somebody who is herself or himself uh injured uh so-called red pill i was just uh, telling emily i wanted to book some people who have had vaccine well i've got <laughs> somebody i want i want yogendra to interview to actually do an evaluation on the show so and i and i, and I cleared it with him today so uh red pill hey dr drew how you doing good what's up good uh we spoke about probably about a year ago uh, i've been dealing with um a pretty serious vaccine injury for about two years now mm. Uh, neurological issues, uh, neuropathies, uh, POTS, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Quick question for you, though. Um, so one thing that's very interesting uh, is that, like, my symptoms wax and wane pretty heavily. Mm-hmm. And what I've noticed is that, like, let's say I'm intimate with my wife, right? The day after, the head pressure, the neuropathy, all that stuff kind of alleviates. Right. And then day two, day yeah. three everything comes roaring back. So I feel like it's yeah. some kind of, you know, hormone imbalance or Here, here's my something's guess. going on. Here's my guess. Because I, I talked to Dr. Yogendra today about what they're finding, and, and they're, it's very clear, it's vascular. It's just like Dr. Cole told us, vascular endothelial inflammation. And so it okay. is a, it, that's really where the problems are. Although, although it's in other tissues and things, the main syndrome appears to be related to endothelial inflammation. Um, other things happen as a result. These non-classical monocytes get into the CSF, and there's uh, VEGF increase, and inflammatory cytokine right. markers go up. All this stuff is all sort of probably epiphenomenon. But again, I, I'm going to get him in here soon to give us an update. But it makes sense to me in the sense that sexual activity causes vasodilatation, lots of it. That's why people sneeze okay. and get runny noses and things from things like Viagra, because that nitric oxide right. activation causes dilation. And I bet that it takes a, you know, you probably get some relief from that. And then yep. it's an interesting, it suggests, you know, would something like a, a nitric oxide inhibitor, a Viagra or something help you feel better? I would talk to your doctors about that. Or would a, okay. a vasodilator like an amlodipine or something like that? Just an, it's a, again, because we don't know what, what we're doing here with these syndromes yet. These are all interesting right. ideas to kind of talk about. I, am I right, Kelly? Did I hear somebody at some point saying something about Viagra as a possible therapeutic? Make kind of sense. I have, what, yeah, uh, because I think that it, when you're talking about treating the vascular side effects, then yes, something like yeah. uh, you know any vasodilators, which would certainly include yeah. something like um, the like amlodipine, you know, as you said, or or Viagra, yeah. and many many others. Um, but again, these yeah. are things that we just are going to have to try using some stuff quote off label. You know, the dreaded off label. Mm-hmm. But we've always done it. Oh medicine. God, how dare you? How exactly. dare you? You know, the try same, to help your patient. My God. Same way we came to steroids and hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, because using things off-label is a mainstay. It's been a cornerstone of medicine, yep. and so I think that it will. This getting to the the adequate treatment of people with long COVID or with vaccine injuries is going to rely upon us to repurpose drugs based on the symptomatology and to be creative. Yep. 
Yep, I totally agree. And and again, Dr. Yogendra will tell us about some of the things they've been doing, and they've got all kinds of interesting ideas. So, um, Kelly, thank you, uh, as always. I appreciate you very much, and thank you for help, helping us get Dr. McCullough in here. And next up uh, for you and I is with Ed Dowd. I guess he's got some sort of yes. interesting update for us. He always does. He's, I'll tell he's you, you know, pretty he, excited. he is he is unbelievable in terms of, uh, you know, he just keeps gathering more and more data uh, and analyzes it in different ways and has a really great way of presenting it, I think, accessible to people who aren't necessarily scientific uh, with regard to their backgrounds. So, yes, he's joining us on Monday the 8th um, at our usual time, 3 p.m. Pacific time on Monday. And then tomorrow, I'm going to talk to our friend Bobby Chacon. He's an FBI agent. Um, talk a little bit about what's going on at the FBI. Uh, Nikolai Petrovsky, May 9th. That should be interesting. Yep. You're with that too, aren't you? I am. Uh, I am. He yep. is. I don't. Hey, tell me about Nikolai. Do you know? I don't know his story. I've seen his name around. I, I, I don't know. A lot. Yeah, I don't, Wait, know, I don't know, know much about him. No, I don't know a lot Wait, about him. I may him. have he referred was... that. I may have referred him. <laughs> yeah, occasionally, yeah, occasionally I will come upon people like, ooh, we got to talk to these guys. So, and, and, <laughs> and, I, and I never and, remember and their And I name, said, so I'm all in. <laughs> yeah, so apologies that I don't recall this, but I, they, they, I find them on social media or somewhere. I think this is really interesting. We should thump on them and see what's up. Also, um, Nicole Sapphire is coming in in a couple of weeks as well. Is that correct, Susan? We're trying to move her to the 15th. Fair enough. Okay, everybody. Thank you all for being here. Uh, sorry, but I hung up on uh, Twitter Spaces by accident. It really was. I don't. I don't even know how I did it. Good job. Um, but it hung up. And so uh, <laughs> thank all of you over on Restream and of course at uh, Rumble. We see the rants, and we'll see you tomorrow at three o'clock. Ta-ta. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help. Hey.